Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon. This is Free Culture Radio. Brad Ray, Ph.D., is a senior justice and behavioral health researcher at RTI International. I interviewed Brad recently about an article that he co-authored that's entitled Spatiotemporal Analysis Exploring the Effect of Law Enforcement Drug Market Disruptions on Overdose, Indianapolis, Indiana, 2020-2021, which was published in the July 2023 edition of the American Journal of Public Health. It was a great conversation. Uh, We discussed the article, obviously, talked about policy, harm reduction, mutual friends. The interview was for another show I do called Century of Lies, which, like this show, is syndicated by the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's audio port service and is available as a direct download or podcast from pretty much everywhere you get podcasts. Thing is, this interview felt to me like it belonged on free culture. Uh, So as I originally planned... The first part of the interview does appear on the June 21st edition of Century, and the rest of it, uh, most of it, actually, uh, you'll hear, well, now. Well, different places, different stuff. I mean, in Vancouver, you've got people like, you've got people like Dolph. I mean, they yeah. are, and they're not just doing the occasional um, giveaway in front of City Hall um, every time the um, the the, uh, the 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 BC coroner releases data on overdose, they do a drug giveaway, and they've even had a city councilor there. They have a brick and mortar um, space. They are part of an actual project. They are doing safe supply. It's only a limited group of about forty-one people. And that's the problem. These projects—they're all very limited. The national community, national safer supply community, of practice brilliant, medicalized. Um, it's too limited, and it's just not enough. It's just not big enough. I mean, it's a brilliant project. Though I mean, there's yeah. there's some amazing stuff. It's just, oh. but you're still yeah. operating within the context of people being decriminalized. It's the problem with the with the drug possession decriminalization. I mean, sure, you've decriminalized drug possession. Yay! Now people won't have to go to jail, or they won't have to um, get uh, get get taken and thrown into the criminal justice system. But they're still criminalized because they still, you know, they're still not going to be able to get certain licenses. They're still not going to probably have their children. They'll have their children taken away. They may not be able to get a lot. You know, there's a lot of jobs they won't be able to have. Um, there's a lot of you know they, they forget about benefits, forget about public housing, forget about a lot of different stuff. I mean, there's you're still criminalizing the person, even though yeah. you decriminalize. It's, it's it's a farce. It's just to make the criminal legal system limp along a little further, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I will say this, though. Like, uh, I have co-authors on this who, um, you know, very much uh, have led some of the conversations in the U.S. around defunding the police. Um, and, you know, I... I uh, I don't really, the, the, and, and I'm talking specifically of the study in Indianapolis. I don't really squarely put like blame on the law enforcement that are doing this. Um, you know, I, I think it's part of their role. And I think that they're doing their job that they're told to do. And until we can change these things from a policy level, you know, then we're going to continue to see this. I will say, though, I do become very uh perturbed when people suggest that this research is anti-cop, anti-law enforcement. That is a sticking point for me. And the reason is because, you know, we did interviews with cops in Indianapolis about this, and we would ask them, like, what does a big win look like in this whole war on drugs? And they didn't have anything. 
and they would hang their heads and they knew they, I mean, a couple of people described it as a never ending game of whack-a-mole from an occupational safety standpoint, from a, you know, for improving what it is to be a police officer in this country. I suggest that, you know, that we to kind of calibrate that drug enforcement away from them. We see now that it isn't effective. We see now that it has been causing, uh, potentially causing harms. Um, and, and I think taking that off their plate to me is very pro law enforcement, uh, not anti law enforcement. I mean, this is a very corny example. I know this, but I used to be a college professor. And when you're a college professor, there are three things every college professor knows about teaching, research, and service. Those are the three things all professors are expected to do. A lot of, almost all professors like some level of research. Some professors like to teach. I did not personally, that's why I don't do that anymore. Nobody really likes to do service. And frankly, they're all pretty bad at it. You know, you'll get thrown on a budget budgetary affairs committee and you know, why am I on this? Well, because you have to do service. And do these, do these professors ever get on a budgetary affairs committee and say, you know, I can't even balance my own checkbook or I've never seen a budget. I don't know how to do, do they ever get on those meetings and say that? No, no, no. They get in those meetings and they say, I can do this. I can figure this out. And if somebody were to do research and point out that in higher education, there are administrators getting paid so much money that could probably do a lot of the service because they like doing service and said, you know what, the average faculty member probably shouldn't do service anymore. No one would call that anti-professor research, right? They would say, you're trying to recalibrate, rethink about what professors do. And that's very much what I see here with law enforcement. Um, there are many other examples of where I think law enforcement should not be involved. I mean, the other area of research I'm very involved in is behavioral health, mental health crises. I do not think somebody with a gun uh, showing up to a mental health crisis is going to assist. Uh, I think there are many programs out there that are looking at uh, alternative responses that are, are showing some effectiveness. Uh, and same with drugs. Like, this is just not what cops are there to do deal with and do. And we've seen 40 years of them just not really being able to put any dent in this. So um, I just don't see the research here as anti-police at all. In fact, I see it as very pro-police and pro uh, how we want to recalibrate law enforcement across this country. So yeah. I, for what it's worth, I agree. I um, run into my own disagreements with folks. I mean, on I look at the numbers, and when it comes to reported crime, we we you know, the one year we managed to clear twenty percent of reported property crimes, and that was amazing because that was the most we've ever done. Most of the time, it's down around seventeen percent, and that's just the ones that are reported. And yeah. violent crimes, we clear about fifty percent, but that's only the reported violent crimes. There's and, a victim there, right? So you can actually, yeah. Well, and and but even then, you know, sometimes we get the wrong person. You know, the, the Innocence Project is a great example. It's not yes. the only one, but there are plenty of examples of just getting the wrong person. And even then, 50% of the violent offenses that get reported don't even get cleared. You know, and that's, and that's, those are the, I mean, it's just, I, saw I want estimate. them to do their damn jobs is what I would <laughs> yeah. like. And getting them away from drug enforcement so that they would just do their damn jobs. I mean, that's, I mean, so I'm, I think I'm in agreement with you on that one. <laughs> really. Yeah. 
I mean, I've seen estimates that suggest that um, less than 2% of all illicit drug market activity is actually known by police. So it's like, there's, there's so, this is an insurmountable task that we've given them. And same with the mental health thing, right? Where we have zero functioning mental health care system in our country. Instead of building that up, let's just put this on police officers. Like, I, I can't believe it. So, um, yeah, no, I think we calibrate them away from this, give them the opportunity to do real public safety work. Um, and I, I just don't see the need within the drug enforcement angle. And I think the big picture, like big picture for America right now, and there's kind of three things I always say when I talk to audiences about this, uh, the kind of uncomfortable truths about substance use in America. Substance use is ubiquitous in our culture. I mean, especially when you put alcohol, caffeine in there, prescription medications, I mean, cannabis, it is huge. A lot of our society uses substances. It just is what it is. That's the first thing that we all need to admit. The second thing we need to realize is that the vast majority of those people, even the people using the most dangerous, quote unquote, uh, illegal, illicit drugs, the vast majority of them do not have a disorder. They do not have a problematic substance use problem. They are experiencing those effects of those drugs and then going about the day of their life. The people that do have disorders, and this is, I think, the third uncomfortable thing, the people that do get, quote unquote, diagnosed as having a disorder, it's not that there's some genetically different thing about them. It's that they don't have the social resources to use drugs like everybody else. They're unhoused, they're unemployed, they don't have transportation, they don't have family connections. This is what makes them more likely to be diagnosed with a disorder rather than just you know somebody who's using substances. And I think when we think about drug use like that, all of a sudden, what we should be realizing is that we should be addressing those social reasons, right? Those housing, employment, uh, health care, those are the trauma. Those are the reasons why we see some of this happening, not, you know, uh, some genetically predisposed individuals. But yeah, I think those are big uh, fundamental changes uh, for people in the U.S. who their entire lives who have been told, you know, you could do this one thing and get addicted and never be able to control yourself again. And uh, that's just been the message we've been shoving down people's throats for as long as I can remember anyway. Well, I asked you about the opiates, the the uh, the thing with the other drugs, which is which is brilliant. I hadn't even thought about that, but that's an interesting. It's sort of like a speed. It's almost like a speedball. I don't really know what a speedball was, but when you were describing the the use of the stimulant and the fentanyl to kind yeah. of extend, that sounded to me like sort of a like is it sort of a reverse speedball? How does that? What is that? Interesting. I think they call them a goofball with math. Um, yeah, that's a term I've heard from the street, but. Uh... Yeah, and I think it goes both ways. Like, it's not always just taking fentanyl and extending it with a stimulant. Sometimes it's taking a stimulant and then cutting it with it. And, you know, the other thing, this is, again, just something I've learned talking to folks who use substances. I mean, some people, like, think about people in, like, restaurant industries or night working industries. They're taking stimulants to stay up late. Then when the sun's coming up, they got to crash for eight to, to, to regenerate. And sometimes they're using, uh, you know, depressants, opiates to fall asleep then. So, yeah, I once made a judgmental comment about people being, being at a bar at eight o'clock in the morning. And then I realized that, and of course, if these people just got off work, well, of course, you're stopping off at a bar. Yeah. Good God. I mean, how are you going to get to sleep at eight o'clock in the morning? 
And that stimulant depressant cycle is the most American cycle there is, right? You got people just cranking as much coffee and sugar and caffeine into their body as they can in the morning just to get their ready for work. Then when a hard day of work is done, they just want to smoke weed or drink alcohol to mellow out. That's America. And, uh, and, and if you're taking the right drugs, that cycle is fully promoted. Uh, and we love that cycle. So if you're taking the wrong ones, you could end up in jail. So I, I the other thing I was going to say, though, is on the um, on that policy piece, like I am, I am kind of fascinated. Two things about this study. One is I am very fascinated in replicating it. So we have a couple of cities right now that are talking to us about that. And I want to know how generalizable is this? And part of the reason I want to know that is Indiana is a very unique drug landscape. And I mean that for two reasons. One, where it's situated in the United States, it has drugs coming through from Chicago. It has drugs coming through from Detroit. It has drugs traveling north, south, and east, west. I mean, it's right there in the, in the, in the middle of this country and the drug supply route. So it's interesting that way. The other reason it's interesting is that in the state of Indiana, to possess a syringe is a felony without a prescription. And there's no states that have such stringent laws like that. And so this gives police sort of the magic bullet sometimes to uh, incarcerate, arrest people just by having that paraphernalia on them. And so I want to see in states where we don't have that level of punitiveness, where we have different drug supplies. So we're talking to one big city on the uh, West Coast, one big city on the East Coast, and another big city in the Midwest right now about potentially replicating it. So that's one thing that we're very focused on. The other is this policy side. And I think that there are policies, there are programs that could be developed here, but they're going to take some of the most trusting and unique public health and public safety partnerships we've ever seen in this country. But let me tell you, there, there's th this is why I have hope. There's a program uh, from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, called the ORRP, the Opioid Rapid Response Program. And the way this works is, uh, say you're in a rural community and there's a doctor that's kind of the only methadone or the only buprenorphine prescriber in that rural community. But say that doctor's also a criminal and doing criminal behaviors, um, victimizing people or um, taking property. And the DEA is, say, studying that or, you know, uh, doing investigation on that person or local police are doing investigation on that person and they're going to arrest that person, that doctor. If that, if the police are going to arrest a major provider in an area for patients, pain patients, or um, uh, patients who are receiving uh, medications for opioid disorder, the, the, they will contact the DEA and the DEA will contact the ORRP, the Opioid Rapid Response Program. And they will say, hey, in the next week, in the next month, this doctor is going to get arrested. We're going to have no more methadone prescribers. We're going to have no more buprenorphine prescribers in this community. The ORP then plans out a mitigation strategy. They say, okay, maybe we could get a buprenorphine uh, prescriber to come in and we can put signs on the door. Here's where you could go get this uh, prescription. Here's where you can go get naloxone. They try and mitigate that disruption with weeks and days and hours to plan it out. 
This is the exact same mechanism that we're studying in this. And if you look into the ORP program, the reason it came to be was because of the second wave of the opioid epidemic or the overdose epidemic, where we see people shifting from prescription medications to heroin. And they know that will happen. They know that if there's not a safe supply, people will go to the illicit supply and that it increases their risk of overdose. And so the ORP is there to mitigate that when it's a patient whose drug supply from a doctor is being disrupted. We are looking at the exact same thing. Instead of it being a patient, it's a person who's using substances in the community. And instead of it being a doctor, it's a drug merchant. And so this is where the difficulty comes in. Police investigate these drug merchants and these drug suppliers for weeks, months, years, but they won't share that information. They, they think it's too fine of an investigation. They think it's too sensitive of materials to change to, to, to um, provide to anybody. And we even asked uh, some officers, like, if that's true, if, if it's such a if it's such a secure investigation, how come sometimes 24 hours after you take, you know, uh, enough fentanyl off the street to save uh, uh, the western part of the country? I mean, this is an article I see every day, right? I just saw one the other day that so many uh, fentanyl pills were uh, uh, seized in Florida that it could have killed San everybody in San Diego or something. But anyway, um, when you have one of these, how come we see it in the news the next day? If you can't share any of that information, how does the news get it? And what we learned is, and this is, I'm I'm sure this isn't a you know a generalizable to the every police department in the United States of America, but what we've learned talking to some police departments is that's because we have no more to go on. We don't have any phones from this person. We don't have any other connections from this person. And so the media thing is to just put them on blast to say this person, we caught them and they're out of the game now. So if they can do that some of the times and they know that they don't have any more cases, then at least in those events, call your public health department, call your local SSP, have a conversation and say, we are about to disrupt this drug market. And there is now ample research to show that when that happens, there are iatrogenic unintended harms that come afterwards. And the cops don't got to be the ones out there handing out the Narcan. They just got to give that information to the people who can. Right. And um, I think that there is a possibility there. It's just going to require some real trust between uh, law enforcement and their sort of local partners. And maybe that'll happen. I don't know. I'd like to see it happen someplace and study it So. This is a conversation with Bradley Ray, Ph.D., a senior justice and behavioral health researcher at RTI International. We'll have more in a moment. You're listening to Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McAvey. Welcome Let's hear more from my conversation with Dr. Bradley Ray, a senior justice and behavioral health researcher at RTI International and one of the co-authors of an article entitled Spatiotemporal Analysis Exploring the Effect of Law Enforcement Drug Market Disruptions on Overdose, Indianapolis, Indiana, 2020-2021, which was published in the July 2023 edition of the American Journal of Public Health. So, had, um, now, xylocene hadn't been hitting the uh, the market um, where you were looking in Indianapolis, right? Or had no, not at that point. We hadn't seen too much xylazine and the tox. Um, but, you know, that's another thing right now is like people are, they think they can ask somebody who's using drugs like, oh, hey, have you seen xylazine in the supply? How would anybody using drugs know that there's xylazine in the supply? How would they know? 
And even like we talked to, uh, I was, I won't say where, but we were in a city talking to three different syringe service programs in that city, asking all of them, have you seen xylazine? Have you seen xylazine? They all said, no, we haven't seen that here. We haven't seen that here. Then we started, we went back the next day and we said, hey, have you seen necrotic tissue? Have you seen very uh, wounds? And they said, oh yeah, we got a couple of people that have had recently been, uh, had to amputate limbs. That's very likely xylazine. So I say all this that the only we need to uh, very rapidly in this country, we need to equip people who use drugs with the appropriate technologies to determine what is in that supply. And I think that the what, uh, you know, FTIRs, I think the testing strips that are out there, and I've seen in some states where they buy this technology for law enforcement and law enforcement are like, well, what the hell are we supposed to do with this? Right. They, they don't know what to do, even when they do see xylazines in something. We need to put this technology in the hands of people who use drugs so that they can make those decisions so that they can inform their networks about what's happening there. And I think that's probably the most rapid thing we need to be doing. But to do that, uh, what we need is to figure out a mechanism to uh, my colleague Jennifer Carroll says, carve out criminality. We need to find spaces in our in our cities and our towns where we can carve that out and just say, hey, listen, law enforcement. People are going to be bringing drugs here to get them checked. You can't turn this into some hunting expedition where you're just waiting over there in the parking lot. This needs to be a space where people can feel comfortable bringing these supplies to get them tested to see what's in there. And I think that's probably um, one of the bigger things that we could do right now. And I think, you know, you and I talked about this at the beginning too, like, you know, treatment is great. Uh, one of my other colleagues, Brandon Del Pozo on this project, he always says treatment is what your mom promotes. Treatment is what the government promotes. Treatment is what, you know, everybody promotes. But it's it's important to know uh, not everybody's ready for treatment. Not everybody wants treatment. And um, some of the times we have made treatment so difficult to get. And I mean, when I say treatment for this particular topic, I mean, Medications for opioid use disorder, number one, I mean methadone, and number two, I mean buprenorphine. And we make those so hard to get. Uh, there's so much stigma around getting those, such a barrier to getting them, so many meetings that we make people to go to. And then as soon as somebody tests positive for other substances or misses a meeting, they get cut off. They get cut off from that supply. And so, you know, the availability of those medications could have a huge impact, but we need to lower the threshold for getting them, for maintaining them, for keeping them. And I do think we need to consider any path to recovery. Uh, there are people who have uh, discontinued um, or dramatically reduced their opioid use by shifting over to safer substances like cannabis. And I do think research is going to continue to show more of that, um, that states that have uh, medicalized or, or particularly recreational cannabis. I mean, a lot of the folks I've talked to who would use that as a, as a kind of a mitigation tool simply say they can't afford it um, because, the, you know, once once it's regulated, cannabis can be so expensive through some of these regulatory means. But um, uh, I think that we're going to end up seeing states um, where that's uh, recreational, we're going to see decreases in overdose for kind of two reasons. One is that some people will use that, um, but also that smell of cannabis, that's the entryway for law enforcement. 
So like in the state of Michigan, we can look at drug seizures there. And as soon as cannabis became recreational, drug seizures just tanked. And part of it's because cops stopped, you know, um, uh, seizing cannabis. But all of a sudden, if you can't get your entryway into somebody's car through that smell, you can't find these other products that might be in there. And if you're not taking people's products, what we're seeing is that there could um, that taking people's products could have this negative effect. So policy wise, I think there's a lot going on um, and it's, it's not happening rapidly enough. And it's unfortunately happening state by state. And then we wait and evaluate some of the state stuff and the state stuff is conflicting with the federal stuff. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot more that we could be doing, but it's still better than it was under prior administrations. And sometimes you have to just say, you know, and just sit out with the feds and just and just move forward anyway. I mean, the the you know the on point in New York, the uh, the folks at Project Weber Renew and Kodak up in um, up in Rhode Island, um, moving forward with supervised consumption, with, you know, safe consumption sites. Um, supervising you know, somebody you know, staring yeah, yeah, at I, you, but you know, and right. drug checking services too, which is the other, you know, the, the which is you know, I mean, it's it's at least okay, was, you know part of the reason I wanted to leave higher ed too is I wanted to study these safe consumption sites. And I got uh, an opportunity to go to one in San Francisco. My my uh, colleague, Alex Kral, invited me out to the one in San Francisco there. And I had looked at videos online of On Point. I had watched some interviews out there and I was expecting to see a clinical setting. I was expecting to see people behind curtains. But what I saw was so, so much more beautiful than that. I mean, I saw people hanging out, listening to music having a, you know, socializing. And um, it was awesome. That that Tenderloin Lincoln Center was awesome. It's really unfortunate they shut it down. And I will say, though, one of the other interesting, while I was waiting in line to get in there to that Tenderloin Lincoln Center, people were, uh, the people across the street and like high rises were putting laser pointers on us to try and intimidate us. So, um, you know, I don't really know. I think we you know, I said a bunch of things I think we need to do, but uh, educating America at large about harm reduction is something we should think about doing too, because, you know, I understand that these folks don't want to have these in their backyards, uh, but they they need to know the evidence that having one in their backyard is probably going to make less needles, not more. Having one in their backyard is going to reduce overdose deaths and reduce crime, not increase it. And if they knew that evidence, my hope would be that they'd be more likely to be supportive of these types of sites. But yeah, that uh, Tenderloin Linkage Center was a really incredible thing, and I, I hope they figure that out, and I hope they can bring that back. That was my conversation with Dr. Bradley Ray, a senior justice and behavioral health researcher at RTI International and one of the co-authors of an article entitled Spatiotemporal Analysis Exploring the Effect of Law Enforcement Drug Market Disruptions on Overdose, Indianapolis, Indiana, 2020-2021, which was published in the July 2023 edition of the American Journal of Public Health. This was actually the second part of my conversation with Brad. The first part aired on a different show I produced called Century of Lies. And finally, the Support Don't Punish Global Day of Action is held each year on June 26th. The theme for the 2023 Day of Action, Reclaiming People Power for Sustainable Alternatives to the War on Drugs. Learn more about the Support Don't Punish Global Day of Action at the campaign website, which is supportdontpunish.org. That's supportdontpunish.org. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Free Culture Radio. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. 
I want to thank my guest, Dr. Bradley Ray. Many thanks to everyone out there fighting for civil rights, human rights, and social justice. And thanks especially to you, dear listener, for your support. You make it all worth it. Free Culture Radio is volunteer production for community radio and syndicated via the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's audio port service. Theme music for Free Culture Radio is composed and performed by Tom Nickel and Four Dimensional Nightmare and is used with permission of the artist. Free Culture Radio is available as a podcast or direct download. Find links at the website kboo.fm slash freeculture. We'll be back in a month to continue our examination of drugs, drug cultures, and the influence of drugs on society. Thanks again for listening. This is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long! <laughs>